When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And tonight we are pleased to have two terrific guests. Uh, one of them is Roger Cook, who is a musician, singer, producer, former pantomime artist, and one of pop and country music's most prolific and successful songwriters. Uh, writing or co-writing memorable hit songs, including You've Got Your Troubles, Here Comes That Rainy Day Feeling, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, My Baby Loves Lovin', and the Coca-Cola jingle turned into an international sensation. I'd like to teach the world to sing. His songs have been covered by the likes of Johnny Cash, Dusty Springfield, uh, Bing Crosby, Bette Midler, Neil Diamond, Petula Clark, The Drifters, Gene Pitney, and his late great friend John Prime. In the mid-1970s, he relocated to Nashville and enjoyed a second career as a writer of country hits, including Don Williams' I Believe in You and Crystal Gale's Talking in Your Sleep and George Strait's One Night at a Time among others. He's a member of the National Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Country Music Hall of Fame and the first Englishman to be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And our other guest, Henry Gross, is a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all that matters to me. I mean, I guess you, you wrote or sang whatever. Yeah, that's I don't, right. But that's you're right. a Jew. That's right. Does anybody need more coffee? <laughs> Henry Gross is a musician, singer, songwriter, 
record producer, occasional actor, and one of the funniest men in rock and roll, a founding member of the doo-wop group Sha Na Na. He played the New York World's Fair and the Catskills while still a teen, and he was also the youngest person to perform at Woodstock. He's open for acts like Billy Joel, Aerosmith, Fleetwood Mac, The Beach Boys, and collaborated with everyone from Dion to Jim Croce to Chaka Khan and written songs for Judy Collins, Mary Travers, Southside Johnny, Ronnie Millsap, and Cindy Lauper. And... 1976, he released the single Shannon, a song we've discussed on this podcast a number of times, which quickly went gold in the U.S. and became a worldwide hit, reaching number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number five on the cash box top 100 and in 2006 he toured with a terrific one-man theatrical production entitled one hit wanderer a journey through the highlights and funniest moments of his life in and out of the showbiz business the showbiz business and i (laughs) i don't care (laughs) i we get the general idea we get the idea Uh, a a journey through the highlights and funniest moments of his life in and out of the entertainment business frank and i are excited to welcome to the show the pride of bristol and brooklyn Roger Cook and Henry Gross. Wow. Wow. (laughs) These introductions introductions double as obituaries, too. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, boys. Well, here we are. We made it through the intro. Yeah, like liftoff at NASA. (laughs) Now, Now, before anything else... Way before uh, United Colors of Bennington, uh, there was uh, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, or We'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. And, I okay, uh, Roger, how much fucking money did you make off that? <laughs> well, it supported three divorces. <laughs> <laughs> I made a shitload of money, but it's all gone. I spent it. <laughs> Roger, we, I didn't know Gilbert was going to start there, but it's an interesting place to start. A, a song that began life as a jingle and something that you had problems with for years. You, you, learned, you hated it for a while. Well, Yes, in a way, I wrote a jingle. It was a 28-second jingle with my friend Roger Greenaway, you know, mm-hmm. and a 58-second jingle as well. And that was that. We got paid, and it was done for. I didn't expect it to become a record and go in the charts, you know. Uh, it was a little lightweight for that. 
But I've changed my mind. I've kind of liked, I've, I've learned to like the song because so many people know it. Mm -hmm. Old people know it very well. And young kids learn, they sing it in school. So what's the hate anymore? And like I say, I spent the money. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of those songs that everybody grew up on. Threw up on, did you say? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should we should explain that Roger, he he was called in with his partner. He wrote it as a jingle, and then for years it followed him around. Like you you, you said, you had disdain for being introduced as Roger Cook, the man who taught the world, oh, the world to sing. sing. Yeah, for God's sake, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and and uh, like I said, I I really didn't like the song that much at all for a long, long time, but I, I like it now and. Um, they even sing it in church in some place in Tennessee. They sing the words of Amazing Grace to that tune, and it works perfectly. So That's incredible. How how pleasantly surprised were you to see it turn up in the final episode of Mad Men? Now, that was something. That was something. I, I was very pleased. Also, I knew there was a little check, you know, coming. So. <laughs> <laughs> Never fails to amuse me, amaze me. But, yeah, I've learned to love that song. I just have. And, uh I always end my act with uh, I do sing here now and again. I haven't sung much in eighteen months, of course, but uh, when I go out and sing, I usually do a medley of old hits from the sixties and seventies, and end with "Teach the World to Sing," and it always brings the cloud of uh, the crowd, the cloud, the crowd up, and they clap and they sing along, and it's it's kind of I've learned to like it, learn to love it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Henry, you, we were before we turned the mics on. You were saying that you and we discussed this on the phone. You're from Brooklyn. You're one of us. You're a lifelong Gilbert fan. I am. And and yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, I I grew up in Brooklyn. It was a it was it, you know if you grew up there, it was a rather interesting uh, grow up. You know, uh, it was uh, my neighborhood was a, you know a tough neighborhood, and uh, you, you know I, I learned very quickly that I didn't fit in uh, with uh, my ethnic group was disliked. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was interesting because when I moved to Nashville, I mean, Roger and I both moved to Nashville. You know, I, I moved um, in 1986. And, you know, I part of the reason was the city was changing. You know, it was getting really crazy. I was in front of the Orange Julius on Sixth Avenue and a guy, a bunch of guys came up to me and said, yo, get off the phone. You know, I was, there was a pay phone on the corner and I not only got off the phone, I left the city. You know, I said, you, everything, wow. you can have everything here. You know, can ha you can have the pogroms, you can have whatever you're doing. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting. I had an, uh, it was, so I went to Nashville and it was great. People told me it would be crazy down there, that, you know, that I would have a harder time down there. And, you know, they said that, you know, what are you going to Nashville for? You know, they said, you know, Jew is a verb in Tennessee. But it, but it wasn't, <laughs> but it, but it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, I, you know, it's come on, Roger. I mean, I was nervous. You know, I thought someone would burn a cross on my lawn and I moved there and it, there was no problem at all. I found out that cross burning had been, you know, banned, you know, it was because of the secondhand <laughs> smoke. But OK, you know, it was OK. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but, you know, it was a, you know, anyway, Nashville was wonderful in 1986. It was like Mayberry. Brooklyn was, you know, um, yeah, I think I always remember what Larry David said, uh, you know, he was always you know he was always counseled to exercise in brooklyn cuz everybody's told you hey take a hike you know <laughs> that's it was always like that what part of brooklyn are you now, from what, yeah. henry i was from flatbush my father we had a, my father had a little drugstore 
on Rutland Road and Nostrand Avenue. You could actually walk to Abbott's Field from there. And it was- hey, you know that neighborhood, Gil. Yes, and it's so funny because to this day, I can't get used to people talking about baseball and mentioning Ebbets Field. To me, it was always like this crappy, the crappy projects. Oh, you didn't. Ebbets Field. That's right. You're you're young. You're younger, man. Well, you know, I my dad only took me to one game there in 1957, and it was it was fantastic because Gil Hodges lived actually where I grew up. Gil Hodges lived around the around the corner and two blocks back, and he used to pass by the stoop where I sat practicing guitar and on his way to the church on the corner. And he would always sit down and ask me to play him whatever I was working on. So, you know, he practiced a lot because he didn't want to have nothing for Gil Hodges. And uh, so the game that I went to with my dad, uh, as it turned out, Gil Hodges actually hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth to win the game. Which, was which turns up as a, an important component in your one-man show. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. kind of it's, centerpiece. And of it. It's, it's when, beautiful. Years ago, when I was struggling uh, for anything, uh, I used to work at this club. Not work, because I got no money. But there was a cl- club in Brooklyn called Gil Hodges Grand Slam Lounge. Was that in the bowling alley, the Gil Hodges Lanes? Was that in there, part I, of that? Don't know. I remember. I remember it was. It was a shitty club. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was Brooklyn. I mean, you know, I grew up playing. You know, I don't want to. I grew up playing all these clubs. You know, in Brooklyn, they were all they were all mob joints, and we had amazing experience in these in these places. I mean, I remember a place. Do you remember, Gil? If you worked in Brooklyn, was there a place called the Album Hall Towers on top of the Album Hall Theater? They used to have all different kinds of entertainment on many floors of this tower. They had ballroom dancing, they got it, they got a bingo, and then they had a rock and roll club. It was called Crazy Larry's Discotheque. Cra- <laughs> I love it. Crazy, crazy, crazy Larry had had arms the size of your legs, and he and he had a little Johnny Jelly Bean hat on top, and and uh, we we played there a lot. And they, they used to give us 10, you know, we'd get 10 bucks a man for playing four or five hours. And I remember at the end of one gig, one of the guys who was a friend of ours decided they'd do us a favor and lift the microphone from Crazy Larry. So we're unpacking and we're out there, we're waiting a half an hour and the keyboard player with his Farfisa organ hasn't come out yet. So I, I, we went back in and we said, what's going on? And they said, you stole a microphone. And I said, I didn't take, what are you talking about? I didn't take your microphone. He says, that's all right. He says, he says, not, you know, you, you stole the microphone. We want it back. So I said, so what are you going to do? You're not going to let us take the organ out? Because it was sitting in the middle of the room. Everything is gone. He says, you're not going to let us take the organ out? He says, no, you just could take the organ. We'll keep this guy here that plays it till you bring back the fucking mic. <laughs> <laughs> It's a true story, and, and, and I have to tell you, we found, so the guy who took it found the mic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Henry, and, what's and that? How, go ahead, Gil. Go ahead, Gil. How did the two of you meet? Oh, he came to town, and I, I, I don't know where we met, Henry. Well, I'll tell you what. Your uh, Murphy probably introduced That's us. it. We had a, a, our best buddy, our mutual best buddy, Ralph Murphy, who is a brilliant songwriter, producer, was Roger's partner in a company called Pickalick Music. And I went to see Roger and, and Ralph, rather. I went to see Ralph, and I fell in love with Ralph. I went over, <laughs> you have to understand, Roger 
as you get into talking to Roger, you'll see that he, he's really an amazing character. Pickalick was unusual because I came from New York. And when you went to see publishers in New York, you know, it was very, everybody had the suits with the pin under the tie, you know, the whole thing was like you were talking to the guy who owned the Mets. It was, you know, everybody, everything was very staunch. When you went to Nashville, every, all the people running the companies had guitars sitting around and they were songwriters too. And they were producers and they were, in, they were artists. Like Roger was... And how many groups were you? You had a band that was had more cuts, hits than the Beatles on the BBC when they were out, right? Blue Mink. We 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 had a fair run, yes, we did. And then he did a thing with Roger Greenway, David and Jonathan. I mean, Roger was an artist and, and great one. And so Ralph Murphy produced April Wine in Canada. He did a lot of stuff. So I showed up 10 o'clock to write a song with Roger. Ralph, rather. He says, come over, write a song. So I get there 10 o'clock in the morning. And I wake up a mutual friend of ours, John Earl, who is in, in a sleeping bag on the floor in Ralph's office. And I wake him up and he said, he was living there. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, I was here to write a song. He says, no, no. And he got up and he left. And then Ralph came in and I wasn't there 10 minutes. Uh, and he had a little refrigerator behind the desk. And we started having Heineken's at 10 in the morning. <laughs> and, then, and, we wrote, and we wrote a good song in about an hour. And then we went out to drink something else. And I thought, I love this place. And so I wound up signing with uh, Roger and Ralph, and I met Roger through Ralph Murphy. It's kind of funny, uh, Henry. You told me on the phone you moved to Nashville and fell in with a bunch of Brits. Yeah, it's true because we, you know, we had a, see the country. I went to Nashville because New York. Really, the reason I left New York is you couldn't get records recorded. The only thing that was being recorded was R and B, and I'm, you know, I'm a rock and roller. I wasn't going to get anything cut, so I went to Nashville. I thought country's closer to rock and roll, which it is, and so I went down there, and and it was, you know, really it was great. Um, you can't imagine Nashville in 1986. It was just, it was like a little paradise, and and there, it was like a, you know, when Dylan came to New York, he went to Greenwich Village, and you could get a room for fifty dollars on mm -hmm. on Bleecker Street. You know, you get a, get a you know a little hole in the wall to to hang your hat. When when I left, for, you know, for Nashville, it was either get a one bedroom on Thirty Fifth Street and breathe a tunnel soot, or go down to Tennessee and get a house with a yard and a pool. It was great. It was the same price. So that was part of it. But really, it was like the village was when Dylan came because there was wow. not, there were millions of songwriters. Everybody that you talked to, if you said, "What do you do in New York?" You say, "What do you do?" And the guy would say, you'd say, I'm a songwriter. He'd go, yeah, but what do you do? You know, they didn't get it. But in Nashville, they would say, oh, you, you need a loan for a bus? Come to our bank, whatever. You know, it was, it, I couldn't believe it. I, it was paradise. And then I met Roger. And then you met me. Roger, <laughs> what was your initial impression? <laughs> <laughs> what was your initial impression of Henry, Roger? Loudmouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder where you got that, yeah. I thought to myself, is there no beginning to this man's genius? <laughs> he, actually, he did. He wore me out the first time I got together when we were in a restaurant somewhere, and I had a quarter that I wanted to make a phone call, and he kept saying, give me that quarter. I need that quarter. I said, Henry, I need to make a phone call. Give me that quarter. I thought, I don't like this man. <laughs> That's that's not I true. To love him. Yeah, that's called poetic license. Yeah, we, we told uh, b before we were doing a sound check, and our engineer John Murray was telling uh, Henry to put his phone on something soft. And what did you say, Roger? 
I said, put your dick out there. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously they have that kind of relationship. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and Frank told me he was talking to you, Roger. Yes. And uh, and you said, is Gilbert going to ask me about my dick? <laughs> did I say that? You did. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, most people do. I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Roger and Milton Berle, yin and yang. <laughs> Roger, Roger, this is a segue. Did you write a little something about that subject that you can play on the uke? That you're holding? Well, I wrote a song about an old friend, but actually he's my age. Uh-huh. And I did I did write a song about a friend like that and um, about, you know, watching someone kind of slip away into the twilight, lose their get-up and go. And I can play a little if you like. Would you mind? No. Sliding. No. What was it, Alan? Let me think. Oh, yeah. I miss... My stiffy that used to rise in a jiffy. These days it's iffy if he rises at all. I miss my boner, that one eyed loner, that old sperm donor. He don't donate much anymore He used to stand up and watch me shave in the morning Now he hangs his head and stares at the bathroom floor He used to pop in and say hello without a warning Now he hesitates at the door I miss my porker that old moonlight stalker He once was a corker Now he's frail and quite small Anyway, there you go Oh, brilliant <laughs> My old friend Roger, I think that's my new favorite song All right then Roger, can you cut it as a single? I wish I could. <laughs> Beautiful. Head up, head up for that. that sets a nice tone for the show. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. Henry, I want you to tell Gilbert about the club in Brooklyn, what what you later learned about the clubs, some of the clubs in Brooklyn, like the 19th hole when you were reading Joe Bonanno's book. Yeah, well, I, I played this club a, a bunch of times. And it was, a, you know, a typical club that you would, it was actually, it was a typical kind of club that you'd play at that time. You know, it, it was a mob club and they had, you know, a huge picture of Frank Sinatra behind the cash register. And underneath it was a much, much smaller one of the Pope. And then we would play there, you know, we would play there on like weekends. And, so, you know, they, 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 they really liked us, you know, when we played on the weekends. And sometimes they loved us so much they'd ask us to play on a weekday night, a school night. So we'd play from like 7 to 11. And the joint was empty. There was just a couple of tables in the, you know, a couple of booths in the back with some guys wearing band lawn shirts sitting around talking. And every time we took a break, 
they come up and tell me, "You's a great singer." They said, "We're gonna, you, you, we, we're gonna get you lots of work. We got joints all over town." And I'd say, "It's great, you know." And and so I, you know, they encouraged me, and and so I, you know, I went into show business. You know, that's something I could do. And at the but at the end of the night, you know, we were making ten bucks for the whole night. And you know, well, I kind of cut to the story. We'd stop at eleven o'clock, and there was this guy called Rocco, you know, one of the guys that when he stands in the doorway, no light gets in. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, uh, <laughs> he'd say, just keep on playing. So we, you know, I'd say, come on, Rocco, I'm screaming four hours. I, I you know, I, I can't sing anymore. He'd go, just keep on playing. And I'd say, come on, Rocco, we got to be in school in the morning. And he'd say, and I said, when they start talking like dolphins, you know, you keep on playing. So we played till three, four in the morning. And at the end of the night, they'd give us each $50. Now, my father was working, you know, had it working for my grandfather in the drugstore. He'd make 30, 30, the register sometimes said $35 at the end of the day. And so I'm getting $50. I come home. My father says, what are you robbing gas stations? I don't want this money in my house. I said, no, Pop, mm-hmm. they gave it to me in a club. Well, anyway, you know, years, you know, and years later, I'm reading a book, Honor Day Father by Joe Bonanno. And in the book, he talks about a club he owned in Brooklyn the same name club, and he says that he would hire, in quotes, the crummiest, loudest rock band he could find so the FBI couldn't bug him. (laughs) 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 Now, you see, you see, if they told me the truth, today be Dr. Gross, but no. So, you know, now it's all of this. But uh, that's a true story. Go ahead, go ahead, Roger. I got nothing to say. Oh, okay. You leaned in. You leaned in. You leaned in very excitedly. Yeah. Henry, tell tell Gil about playing some of those places in the Catskills and some of the comics you saw. Oh well, this all started out for me when when I saw. Um, I was you know I went up to the Catskills to play the Esther Manor. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It was right next to Monticello Raceway. One of the guys in my first band when I was thirteen years four just turned fourteen. One of his fathers was a gym teacher, so they hired him at the hotel to do the athletic thing for the people and the kids in the summer. So he got us the job as the band. So we're in the, you know, we're playing in this hotel, and uh, it, it was amazing. I, you know, I'm always, I was always telling jokes, you know, I was because my father loved to laugh, and he had a wicked sense of humor. Mm-hmm. My father really had a dark sense of humor. Like his father died at, when when my parents were on the honeymoon, and so we'd go visit the cemetery. And we would pass these, you know, the same t- place we'd park. We'd walk across the cemetery. We'd see these beautiful limestone mausoleum buildings. And my father never failed to point to those buildings and say to me, those guys really know how to live. But um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we went up to the Catskills. And, uh, and so, you know, I played and I was telling jokes. And this guy, guy says to me, says, you, kid with the big mouth, he says, yeah, yeah. You want to see how it's really done? He says, come see Billy Eckstein's show tonight. So I go to some other hotel. They take us there. And we go, Billy Eckstein. Well, the comic didn't show up. So he says to me, you with the big mouth, you think you're so funny? Go out there. Go out there and do five minutes, you know, 10 minutes, whatever it was. I said, no problem. So I went out. I'm telling every joke I can think of. And I wouldn't say I bombed. They didn't know I was on. They (laughs) They were too busy eating. You see, the food was included. You, there were people eating five steaks. 
You know, I mean, you, <laughs> I can't describe these places if you, if you didn't grow up in them. You know how they keep um, an ambulance on the 50-yard line at a football game? <laughs> they had them outside the dining rooms because these people would eat so much. <laughs> they, would, they, they never exercised in their lives, and they did every exercise because it was included. And then they ate so much, they would literally, some of them would drop dead. And then when they were done eating, they ordered this special dessert, I told you about, Frank, that they only yeah. had in the Catskill Mountains. Gil, did you ever have a filleted Danish? Do you know what a filleted Danish is? No. It's a special dessert because after they ate five steaks and 45 lemon meringue pies, they would say to the waiter, give them a filleted Danish. And a filleted Danish is a Danish filleted. <laughs> oh! <laughs> now, only people that were in those joints could possibly know that. But, but anyway. And who was? So I went out and opened this thing for 10 minutes. And I bombed so bad. Finally, a little woman looked up to me and said, it's all right. You're a nice boy. You don't have to, you don't have to be funny for us. <laughs> I was Gil, 14 and, years old. I was impotent for a month. You know, it was unbelievable. And, and who were some of the people you watched up there? Oh, everybody was up there. I mean, like, you know, Myron Cohen. Oh, love Myron Cohen. I, Myron Cohen walked. I was, you know, Bobby Columbia produced. Roger. Yeah. We'll call you yeah. in a minute. So, <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> yeah, you know, Bobby Columbia, Bobby Columbia was a drummer from Blood, Sweat and Tears. He had it. Uh -huh. He was on TVs. So he's, you know, he manages a lot of people. He's a very talented man and he produced Michael Jackson records. Anyway, Bobby had a studio in New City and we were having dinner in a restaurant with with the engineer that was working on the album we were doing is Ed, the late Ed Michelle who engineered the Eagles records. Well, anyway, so we're sitting there and I, I say to Bobby, that's Myron Cohen at the table back there. And Bobby takes a look and says, yeah, it's Myron Cohen. So anyway, we, we're eating and, and I get up, I go to the bathroom. When I come back, I'm sitting, we're finishing our meal and Myron Cohen walks by with his party and he walks by the table and he goes, Henry Gross, my favorite singer. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, Bobby put him up. You know, he killed me. I mean, oh, but it made my life. You know, it was great. Gil Gilbert, uh, Jackie Vernon is one of Henry's favorites. Give him a little bit of your Jackie Vernon. It was only it, because you do the best Jackie Vernon in the world. But Jackie told one joke in the Tonight Show that almost killed my father. And the joke was, he said, and you could do it better than me, but he said, I gave her the best years of my life and $10. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it hit my father hard. I I remember Jackie Vernon used to. He would go on stage with a clicker. Oh, pictures. And he go, "Here are some slides from my vacation. Here we are being led around the quicksand. Here we are from the waist up. Here's just a bunch of ropes and hats and things." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Henry's enjoying genius. this. Roger, genius. speaking of comedians, what, what one of your groups was it the, the it, was it the Kestrels that that played behind Benny Hill? Benny Hill, yeah, it was very funny to play behind Benny Hill. It was hard to sing without dissolving in the laughter, and that's the truth of it. He uh, Benny Hill was a funny man to work with, but yeah, it, we we sang behind a lot of people, you know. You also Benny told me, go ahead. Yeah, anyway, so I've got to tell you something about Henry. When Henry, Henry thought he was going to be a comedian when he was young, you know. 
And they asked him at school, what are you going to be when you grow up? And he said, I'm going to be a comedian. And everybody laughed. They're not <laughs> laughing now. I <laughs> 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 uh, uh, <laughs> did. told me something funny. He said, do you see that watch? He said, my grandfather sold me that watch on his deathbed. <laughs> Love it. That's a lovely line. And, it's probably an old one. And, but and, I, it's an old one. Listen, and, ask, and Roger, yeah. it's, it's odd to, you know, you're from England, and the way you speak and everything, how do you explain your great success in country western music? I have no idea. <laughs> I really have no idea. I went to, I moved to Nashville in 75. I actually came up for a week from L.A. just to have a look at the place. And I stayed 47 years, you know. I fell in love with the people there. And I had my ears to the ground. I could hear the language that was going on. And what I had to learn how to do was leave out what wasn't going to be country. Leave out all my little English bits, all the bits I grew up with writing, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found out by, by writing in a more plain language, if you like, I was more acceptable to the country crowd. And I mean, my first hit there was a thing called Talking in Your Sleep with Crystal Gale. Sure. And it was a pop song. But the thing about it, the lyric was kind of country. And so I was able to get away with it. Anyway, there you go. That started my career in Nashville, which was a, a wonderful thing. Tell them the lyric you had before you came to Nashville when you were in England and they asked you what you were going to do in Nashville. Oh, you mean my original yes, idea? For yes, you'll love this. Song? Yeah, this is. When I go to her grave on a Sunday, even the flowers cry. <laughs> I mean, that had to get you, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Never did finish that fucking song, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Ro Roger, tell us about your short period doing pantomime before before music came calling as a well, career. Just before I joined Roger Greenaway and the Kestrels. Right. Uh, I'd been out of work for a couple of years um, because the group had folded I was with, the doo-wop group. And uh, I just thought, well, I'll start taking some kind of acting jobs where I can sing as well. And I did a couple of pantomimes, which are things that go on for about three months at a time in England, usually over the Christmas period. And it's a, a fun show. This was a show called Robin Hood that I did. And I did it in both the Coventry and Cardiff. And it was lucky for me that Roger Greenway found me in 1963 and said, hey, one of the boys has dropped out of the Kestrels. You want to join us? And I joined the group and we went on tour. We were opening for people like Herman's Hermits. And, mm -hmm. and uh, while we were on tour, we wrote our very first song together. And it was You Got Your Troubles, I Got Mine. So, you, you wrote them on ukuleles. That's you, a long that, way that from where we started with pantomime, but yes, we wrote it on ukuleles. Yeah. A hell of a journey. What did you tell me on the phone, that the Kestrels taught the Beatles how to bow properly? Which they actually did. The Beatles were very impressed because um, the Kestrels used to open for the Beatles. Wow. And um, the, Kestrel, uh, the Beatles were very impressed with the way that the Kestrels went up and down so well and so uniformly. And Roger Greenaway, my little buddy, taught them how to do it. It was like a one, two, three, count down, one, two, three, count up. Just don't do it when you're drunk. <laughs> uh, that was it. Here's, 
That's great. Here's, here's the question I like to ask whenever there's a songwriter on. Uh, can you uh, maybe even perform it? What you think is the worst piece of shit either one of you ever wrote? Where you go, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed by that. Oh. Go ahead, Raj. You got more to choose I, from. I can't sing it. <laughs> is this a family show? No. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. I can't sing the worst piece of shit because I divorced it from my mind years ago. But there, were, there was so much shit you wouldn't believe. You can write 5,000 songs, which I have. 5,000 songs. 5,000 of them are going to be shit. Wow. <laughs> A man has written 5,000 songs. Henry, what about you? I wrote a song. I don't know how to play it, but I remember I brought it over to John McClain, who I record with, who's sitting right here. And, mm -hmm. and I had played it for my wife, and she said, if you pay money to record that, it's going to be bad. And uh, so I went in, and the song was called, uh, you ready? Bela's Out of Jail, B-E-L-A apostrophe S, Out of Jail. I thought it was funny. Uh, I see. You see, you're getting this. Oh, I'm like, getting oh, the like same. Ba like Bela Lugosi. Exactly. Bela's yeah. out of jail. It, nobody. It was the worst thing. Ever, and I spent quite a bit of time perfecting that garbage. And uh, <laughs> and we and we recorded it for, for, for several days. And, and then uh, everyone got really mad. <laughs> and, we, us, and this is this is a link with you guys is 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 the way you were introduced to rock and roll and how it changed your life uh roger you said you know hearing little richard hearing american music little richard and elvis and, and specifically bill haley and the comets turn turn turns your whole head around well yeah up until then and you've got to imagine the early 50s actually were awful there were people in england covering perry como and covering guy mitchell and and mm -hmm. Morris Day and that, and it was just so bloody bad. The, the music in the 40s was great. The early 50s was awful. It mm -hmm. sucked. Uh, and then I hear, wop, baba, lula, bala, bamboo, 1956, and I thought, something just changed. Something's changed forever. Then I heard Elvis, of course, the Sun Records, and Bill Haley. I got to tell you, Bill Haley was a big star in 1956. Rock around the clock, just... Turn the world around. And, and you thought, finally, this is, this is our generation's music, music that doesn't belong to our parents. I thought it belonged to me, at least, yes. My, my dad heard Little Richard. He said, that's not music, son. I said, no, Dab is great, isn't it? He said, yeah. no, no. He was a Chopin fanatic. He loved Chopin. So he wasn't going to like uh, Little Richard, you know. Mm -hmm. One thing we've talked about on this show a few times is that uh, there were you know, when the English invasion started, it's like the American acts were forgotten about. America turned its back on them, but the people in the English invasion, like the older groups, like the Beatles and the Stones, were like thrilled to meet their heroes here. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. And they were trying to sound like them. They were trying to write songs like them, but being English... You had this hybrid song, hybrid kind of performance come out. And that was what was so fresh, I guess, at the time. Well, we, 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 we were thrilled to meet people like Duane Eddy, you know, the Everly Brothers. I'll whoever, bet. You know. Well, we had Neil Sedaka here, and he's one of the people, like a lot of the Brill Building writers that Gilbert's talking about. But Neil was very heartened years later to find out that, that uh, McCartney 
liked his music. Oh, we all. They were listening to Carol King and Neil Sedaka and and uh, and people like that. Oh yeah, and, they, and they, they were great. They were great. The Brill Building had all these wonderful writers. Elton John uh, teamed up with uh, Neil Sedaka and said, "I want to make you a big star again." <laughs> Did he really? That made Neil very yeah. happy. Roger, very early in your career, and you knew Elton because you, you and Tony Burroughs and other people are singing background on those early Elton albums on Tumbleweed Connection and yeah. and Madman Across the Water. I, I heard you in an interview say that Elton wanted to record some of your songs before his publisher one, told him to do his own. Yeah, there was one song in particular he really wanted to record. And, of course, we were hot at the time, Roger and I, and mm-hmm. he hadn't had a record out yet. And he wanted to cut this song. I was quite happy to have him cut it, but Dick James, his publisher, said, no, you've got to record your own songs. And Dick was right. The rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, what about that pivotal moment for you where your mother bought you the transistor radio? Well, that yeah, changed, I had that a, changed everything. It did, because we could in Brooklyn, you could get radio stations from other cities at night on clear nights. And I remember I used to get this station from Haywood, California, and it was a gospel show with a guy called Brother Al. You can find him on the internet. It was Brother Al from Haywood, Brother California. Al. And he would he was amazing. He was he would play all Mahalia Jackson and James Cleveland, all the great Thomas Dorsey songs, the great gospel songs. But his act was he would say, Send me five dollars and I'll pray for you. And he would cure people from rare diseases and, and get them out of wheelchairs on the radio if you sent him five dollars. <laughs> It was unbelievable. No, I mean, it was fantastic. But, you know, but, but, but I was hearing these songs, you know, they'd be singing, you know, down by the riverside. And they would do all that stair-stepping like, like little Richard did when he would sing, you know, I got a girl that I love so and I'm ready, 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 Teddy, I'm ready. You know, step down, you know, hit all those notes down. They call it stair-stepping. Well, I'm singing along with these gospel groups and my mom who sang briefly with the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and was a trained musician, walked by my room and heard me singing this, and that was that. She said, uh-oh, he can sing, and that was so... It made her happy, and it got my father off my back to be a doctor. And, of course, at that time, it was, you know, a, a very great thing to be in rock bands. You know, when you were 14 years old in a band with guys 18 years old who had nice cars and, you know... You both come from musical families, which I find interesting. And 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 Roger, when Bing Crosby, your father loved Bing Crosby, when he covered one of your songs, were you? Uh, yeah, were you, he covered. He did two of my songs in the end. Two. My, my father said to me, "Well, you can't get any bigger than that, son. Never mind that this was the '80s and Bing's career was more or less over." Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm. I was thrilled to have a Bing Crosby record. Of course, of course. And he sang them pretty damn good, and he whistled good too. Henry, your dad never thought what you guys were playing. He didn't. He didn't think. He didn't think that was music. He thought you were crazy. He didn't when, get when, it at when all you, when you you helped form Sean and Ah. Well, there's a great bit. You know, you, everyone can relate to this. That's in show business. Um, you know, my father. I was pre med in Brooklyn College, and I was doing pretty good. And my father. And then Sean and Ah happened. I was playing. You know, the whole story isn't necessary, but the thing blew up huge with the Woodstock movie, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. So my when I said I'm gonna be in this group with some guys I knew from high school that were now at Columbia and, you know, these other guys. So I was at Brooklyn College and we, the band literally blew up. We were nationwide. And, uh, and my father said, you're, gonna th- you're throwing your life away. 
And, you know, then the band really blew up big, big after the movie. And at Woodstock, I had I had known Jimi Hendrix uh, before, you know, we played gigs with him and things like that. And uh, I'd met him through a mutual friend at Midwood High School. It's a whole story. But anyway, I watched Jimi play, play the Star Spangled Banner from a few feet away. And I thought, this guy is making music only he can make. You know, I need to make music only I can make. I, I know I'm leaving the band. So I told my father I'm leaving the band. And he goes, don't be a schmuck. You know, like whatever I did. You know, I was a schmuck for joining the band and I was a schmuck for leaving the band. There was no winning with this guy. <laughs> you know, and it's a truth. What did you say, Roger? I said, you're still a schmuck. <laughs> Thanks for the elevation, my dear buddy. And, and Henry, you know the, of, of the classic uh, tapes where the mic was left on. Oh, you're going there, uh, huh, Gil? Uh, we're going yeah, there. All right, yeah. we're going there. Shannon was the song in that classic uh, <laughs> Casey Kasem. Uh, yeah. Where he, he, <laughs> it's he, one of the reasons we've discussed Shannon on this show. There, well, was, there see, have been several. I, I, write, I write hundreds and hundreds of songs. I make 30, 30 40 records, and people are going to remember me because this crazy guy said... How, how do you put a song about a dead dog right before a dedication? I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, it's unbelievable because it's a funny and it's a funny song. You know, a lot of people obviously love the song and they get it. They're dog people, cat people, pet people, horses. They understand. They love animals. And, and they and they get what I was thinking, what I was feeling when I wrote the song. You know, I wrote it for a dear, dear friend of mine who's gone, Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. And he had lost the dog. He had a dog named Shannon, and so did I. Anyway, so I wrote wrote this song, and people loved it. But a lot of people hate it. A lot of people have I, I, I don't know what they meant. They referred to it as a right wing ballad. I'm not sure what a right wing <laughs> ballad is. I don't know what that means. You mean we if love you love dogs, you're you're you know you anyway. So it was it was just, it's strange because a lot of people liked it. A lot of people didn't. People. I get really, literally, I get letters every week from people that love the song. Anytime a pet dies, I'm notified on Facebook. You know, people write to me. They do. And, you know, and it's, it's great. Interesting it's great. And you're, I'm proud you're a of it. animal person. Yeah, I, I do yeah. benefits and things. But I'm very proud of, of the fact that if I could have any song, it would be that. And, and people write that love it. But then it's, it's 45 years later. And people, sometimes I'll see, like, there'll be 2,000 positive comments on, on YouTube, and then one guy will go, it, the most the most horrible things that you could say about anything. They say it about my song. I mean, there was Hitler, and you you you're just saving this <laughs> this vitriol for my song about a dog that died. I mean, it's it's really remarkable what people the 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 anger they hold. Like, I know I'm going to get this guy one day. I'm going to get him, and they get me now. I'm 70 years old, and they dump the vitriol on me for a song that was well intentioned. You know. <laughs> Well, it's a song and, and that we love here. Well, thank you. And Henry, Henry, can we sing a little of Shannon together? Yeah, and, yes, we can. And, you know, this is the thing, because I know that one day, and I don't know, maybe it'll be tonight, but, you know, when you write an idiotic melody like this when you're 25 <laughs> years old, and, and, you know, it starts, another day as it ends, you know, and then it goes up to Shannon, you know, and I always think one day, I'm going to be out there and I'm going to go. 
and that's it. Nothing. <laughs> There'll be nothing. There'll be yeah. nothing. So we'll. How do you, how do you still hit those notes, Hen? Um, very very tight Munsing wear. <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert, do you know the words? I have it in front of me. All right, All well, right. let Henry, so let are we Henry going, start, and then you can come in for the second stanza. Are we okay. going to do the oh, verse? For start at the verse, or we? What are we doing? Why don't you start, and then he'll fill in, and then you you can each do a stanza. Well, that's easy for yeah. you to say. You'll you'll sing up to here. I'm sure he'll tell her. Okay, and then, and then you'll and that. and then you will do the Casey Kasem part. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's. Another day is at end Mama says she's tired again No one can even begin to tell her He jumped in. She always loved to swim away. <laughs> Maybe she'll find an island with a shady tree. Just like the one in our backyard. Ah. Wait a minute. I'm looking at my Facebook. Now they all love it. People are apologizing for the vitriol. They're writing to me. Finally, I like that song. I don't know how it happened. It's an incredible moment in my life. They love it now. Thank you, Gilbert. You made my millennium. I can't take it. Gilbert doing a Henry Gross impersonation. I can die now. That sounded good. Simply awful. Don't, don't worry, Roger. You'll get your turn. It's, <laughs> it's the only song that you don't need a guitar to sing the chorus. You need a truss. <laughs> but just, just to prove the point. Shannon, he's gonna hope she's drifting out to sea. See, it can be done. Just so I want well, to tell, tell me a couple of things, Henry. One, uh, let me get this out of the way. How does Shannon, your Irish setter, get a credit on the album as performer? Well, because that unplugged me into something on that. Unplugged me album. into something. Because Excuse it, me, not on, not at, on release. At the end of a song called Evergreen, I brought the dog. I wanted it to sound country, so I brought the dog to the studio and I got her to bark. That's and, great. And and the thing was, she barked and it distorted. So being neurotic, I said. Uh, I'd like to do another take. <laughs> and, and you never saw producers and engineers leave a studio quicker. That's so funny. if you hear the record, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a, a guy with, you know, who, who's planning a hawker, but it was actually my Irish setter. Well, and people might not know that you, you submitted that. You, you sent it to Carl Wilson originally. I you did. weren't You didn't have designs on recording it yourself. No, I wrote it for him because he got so emotional. When when I told him, you know, that I had, a, you know, he had this. I went for lunch to Carl Wilson's house, and I had known him a bit, but not great. And so I, he invited me to his house. He was living in Coldwater Canyon in a beautiful place, and he had a great spread for lunch. But I never found out what it tasted like because his two giant husky dogs jumped up, knocked the table down, ate everything. It was, it was and I said he was he was so nice he couldn't stop apologizing. And I said, Carl, don't worry about it. I, I have a crazy Irish setter named Shannon. I've seen this many times. And as soon as I said it, he got real quiet and kind of a little morose. And he said he had a dog named Shannon. 
that was actually a Samoyed that he loved very much that was hit by a car and it killed uh, a month before. Mm-hmm. You see, this is why Casey Kasem didn't want to do a dedication after talking to me. But anyway, I shouldn't have been a singer. I should have been an undertaker. But anyhow, um, so I went back to New York. I'm sitting on the couch with my Shannon, uh, on, on the bed with my Shannon. And I lived in a building that was had a lot of people whose music sounded like this. It came through the walls. You couldn't think. You know, everybody was playing this kind of rap music stuff that was coming out then. And uh, so somebody told me, if you get a record of the environments, they made these records, like you put it on and it's the ultimate seashore or the, it's, oh. you know, the Okefenokee swamp. So I put on this record of the, of the, you know, the ultimate seashore, it was called an environments record. And right away, the room gets cooler, your mind changes and I'm playing a little guitar. I'm going, you know, and I, the song wrote itself. I mean, you know this as Roger. Do you think that you 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 work hard writing songs and then you get free ones? You you just sit down and they come to you and you write them down and they're almost done when you do it, right? Yeah, I know the ones. They just float in. Yeah, it's like they I don't float th- into your conscious and half an hour later you think, I just wrote a song. Yeah, I love that. And there's the answer that, to your question, Gilbert. What, yeah, you this is what I always ask songwriters. Where does music and words come from? Roger? Well, it's it's obviously ancient. They were obviously trying to sing tunes, you know, like 30,000 years ago, whenever. And then somebody came up with an instrument, you know. Maybe it was a ukulele or some kind of ukulele. Oh, for well, God's us, sakes, tell-, tell him the truth, Roger. Song, <laughs> songs come from other people's previous hits. I mean... <laughs> I'm trying to sound intelligent here. <laughs> I mean, hey, W.C. Field said a thing... This is a tough room. This yeah, is a tough, very it's a tough, tough room. room. Field said a thing worth having is worth cheating for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, what, I, what about You've Got Your Troubles, R- yeah. Roger? You, you big, being Big Roger and Little Roger, you guys sat down and you both composed that on ukuleles? Yeah. And how long is the process for something like that? Did it come? Well, all, it was the we first one you wrote together. Yeah, we were waiting. This is the very first song we ever wrote together. Yeah. I can't tell you what it's like to write one song, your very first song with someone, and go out looking for a new car and a new house. I mean, that's that's what happens when you have your first hit record. And it was wonderful. Well, Roger just had this little melody, and he played it to me. He said, you want to write a song? I said, yeah, sure. And I got my UK took us an hour and a half and wow. we had, uh, it changed our lives of course one song would change your life you I, I wrote 75 songs with this guy and the only thing it changed was my debits <laughs> Henry, fuck off <laughs> I see that worried look upon your face do 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 you got your troubles I got mine She's found somebody else to take your place You got your troubles, I've got mine I too have lost my love today All of my dreams have flown away 
Now just like you I sit and I wonder why do 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 you got your troubles shoot I'm losing the chords here that's enough unbelievable enough. unbelievable that's wow terrific thank you that man was terrific. what a what a first song to have written with somebody I mean out of the blue yeah the song was very embolded and it covered two octaves it was a tough song to sing mm-hmm. um and of course, we brought the counterpoint in at the end. The guy who came in soon, and it must seem to you, my friend, that I ain't got no pity. And it was different in his day, and uh, and a wonderful arrangement by a friend of mine called um, Les Reed. He did a great horn arrangement for it, and uh, well, I'm just grateful for the money. And and then a famous, <laughs> a legendary music producer heard that. And came yeah. and came into your life. Who was that? That was George Martin. He heard it and he got in touch with our publisher because he heard the demo. Thank you for this. <laughs> and uh, our publisher came to us one day and said, "George Martin wants to meet you. Wants you to go over to his office at EMI." Mm-hmm. So Roger and I went over and we sat down with George and had a little chat for a while. And he said. I love that song of yours. And he said, I like the way you guys sing. He said, I'd like to produce that record with you. Now, this is George Martin, 1965, the hottest producer in the world, you know. So we walked out of there floating on there. The only trouble is George was producing an album at the time called um, Rubber Soul. (laughs) And because of of that, we had to wait two months for him to get loose to record the song with us. You got your troubles. And in that sh- short space of time, the Fortunes got hold of the song and uh, did their recording, which was a wonderful record. And uh, they had, we had kind of bittersweet feelings about it. We were watching our song go up around the world, but thinking to ourselves, we could have been the artists as well, you know, and it would have been a, a double, double win, if you like. George Martin was pretty much like the fifth Beatle. Well, and he was, so, absolutely. And so what What was your opinion? What was it like speaking to him and working with him? He was such a classy gent. He had a very posh accent, very classy, and he was involved very much with classical music. He produced classical music. He'd also produced a lot of comedy music with um, uh, some people called The Goons. Oh, yes. Peter yeah. Seller yeah. and... Um, Whoever else, Harry, Harry Seacom, yeah, Harry, Harry Seacom. Anyway, and he be so when the Beatles came to him, he had an arsenal of sounds that he could produce. He could also play the piano very well. He actually learned to play on a kind of clarinet, a anglais. But uh, he had so much musical experience and so much comedic experience, and he was used to making funny sounds on tape when you only have one track or two oh, tracks. Oh, interesting. And this is what George brought to the Beatles. And of course, they loved it. I mean... Uh, oh, they were they fans had, of the Goons they, too. They were yeah, fans they of had the comedy. This, they liked to s- slip off into these wacky sounds. Mm-hmm. And George was right there with him and he could produce those sounds. So George was the natural. He was the fifth Beatle, no question. And you guys, you and Roger, assume these, these, these identities, David and Jonathan. And, yeah, well, and, and was, you recorded you recorded Michelle. You released Michelle. Well, we missed out on uh, you got your troubles, and George right. said, 
He said, I'm sorry about that. And he was apologetic. He said, but there's a song, The Boys Are Gone Rubber Soul. He said, I think it could be a hit. He said, why don't you work up a version? And if it sounds right, we'll go in the studio with it. So we did. Roger and I worked up a person, Michelle, and we ended up with a top 10 record in the States. And, uh, well, it was can we hear? Can we hear some of Michelle? I can't play it. I can no. sing it, but I can't play it. That's okay. I knew there was a reason for you to be here tonight. Henry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you're not just here for the laughs. You know what, Thanks. Raj? Raj, you got to tell them the story of I was Kaiser Bill's Batman. Cause oh, I got to ask about whistling Jack Smith. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is one of the weirdest songs to ever chart anywhere, See, Roger. You, well, you know, I, I, I came up with that little tune in 1966, and... I was doing a radio show somewhere, a BBC radio show, Made of Ale. And um, I played it to our, who was our, um, our plugger at the time, our professional manager, a guy called Tony Hiller. I said, what do you think of this, Tony? And I whistled it to him, and he went, that's great. I said, well, if you like it, I'll put, a I'll put some words to it. He said, no. He said, there hasn't been a whistling hit in years. He said, that sounds like a whistling hit. So it was Tony Hiller's idea to just take it in the studio and demo Whistling Head. And I called it Too Much Birdseed. Right. <laughs> which is what we used to label on people who whistled too much. And, uh, well, the, the, I got it cut, you know. A guy called Noah Walker cut it with Whistling Jack Smith, who was actually the orchestra leader who could whistle. But then they decided it was a big hit and it was going up the charts. They decided to get this guy in, call him Whistling Jack Smith, and put him on the road and make some money, make some money out of this guy. Well, they put him on the road, and he practiced a lot at whistling. Well, what he didn't do was have a whistle half an hour in one lump. <laughs> and after about 15 minutes, his chops went, he couldn't whistle. They put him off after two days, and he never worked again. His career was over, and he had a hit record around the world. I know. I, I will direct our listeners to YouTube to find I Was Kaiser Bill's Batman. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Henry, tell one of the touching stories from your show, uh, your one-man show, which is which is the experience of hearing one of your songs coming out of the radio for the first time. It was it, well. It's it's always amazing. I mean, Roger, you, let me ask Roger. You remember the first time you heard a song of yours on the? Well, it was you got your troubles? Actually, it was you got your troubles. And I was on the railway station at two o'clock in the morning, waiting on the train, and uh, I heard somebody not on the radio. I heard a porter walking up and down the other side of the platform, whistling the song. And oh. I thought, I'm famous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh -huh. It was a thrill to hear this guy whistling, You Got Your Troubles. You know, I knew, this is before, you know, the story about that, but I, I knew Shannon would be a hit mm -hmm. because when I was mixing it, I was playing it over and over, and I lived in this apartment in Queens, in this apartment house in Queens, and it was, uh, it was a lot of people that lived in the building that, you know, it was deified the right to party. Like, if you... If you had your band, I literally rehearsed bands with martial amps and drums in my one bedroom, and they never complained. You could do it on a, in the middle of the week at night, and no one said anything. But if they were having a party on a Tuesday night till 9 in the morning, and if you said something, you would have, you would have gotten cut. So I'm playing this song over and over, and I get a knock on my door, and it's the 
guy from upstairs, and he speaks a little bit of English, mostly Spanish, and he says to me, uh, that song you're playing, and I go, oh, here it is. I said, I'll turn it down. I think he goes, no, no, and he says, what is it? I have to have it. And I went, oh, boy. You know, if this guy's liking it through the wind, through I the walls, you know, and it, without anything. But the first song that I ever heard, I, my, I had an album on ABC Dunhill. Mm-hmm. And is that the Henry Gross album, the, the first one? The first one. before the There were two named Henry Gross. I thought, this is such a commercial title, I'll use it twice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I put it, had this album on ABC, and I wouldn't say it was released. You know, it escaped. <laughs> and it, it didn't go, you know, it went, went lead, not gold. And, and it, you know, and, and pretty soon they dumped me from the label, you know, and... and uh, I never heard it, and I, and I it was like I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I thought, will I ever get another record deal? And it's like six o'clock in the morning, and I'm in I'm in the apartment, and this is the truth. And it, in the townhouse that the guy was renting, who stole the microphone, same guy, <laughs> the same guy, a guy named Mark Hockstadt. He stole the mic and had to give it back to save our play, our organ player. And I'm in his apartment, and we're kind of we're pretty drunk. And at six in the morning, Dennis Elsis, if you remember him from WNEWFM, sure, he's still on XM and, uh, and FUV, and he's an f- amazing person. And Dennis played a song of mine called Morning Star on the radio. And, you know, when you hear it, we had the radio on it, and I heard it, and I didn't recognize it right away because you're not expecting to hear your song. And I about, can imagine. And, if, you know, about you know, on, on that label, I was, you know— <laughs> You know, I was not expecting to hear it ever. So, but I heard it, and about halfway through, I'm going, wait a minute, that's my record. So I called him up because he was alone at NEW, and he answered the phone. And we've been friends ever since. And so, it, but, it, but it knocked me out. It totally, I you, can't, imagine. you can't imagine. It's New York can, City. Can you, you know, it's 20 Can we get days. back to the, the Catskills <laughs> again? Oh, and boy. <laughs> so you, you saw, well, you saw Henny Youngman out there. So Henny Youngman, he used to have a, a safety pin with a dime under it. Did you ever see that? And people would say, what's that, yes, Henny? He'd say, yes. it's my diamond pin. <laughs> yes. He, he once gave me one of those. Oh. And, and, and he had a bottle of pride and a bottle of joy, liquids. And he said, this is a picture of my pride and joy. Oh, yeah. He would do that kind of shtick. It was, but, you know, I loved it. A lot of, you know. It, I did, too. You got to love it. I mean, it's incredible. So you saw Myron Cohen. You saw Henny. Did you see what, like Jackie Gale and Corbett Monica? And, uh, Jackie Mason. I, Mason, I know, I, you, saw, I, know you. I know. I saw Mason many times. Yeah. He's we'll a brilliant comic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that he is. He's a brilliant No one can take it away. He's one of the great comics in the world. I mean, he's the man that said, there's no bigger schmuck in this world than a Jew with a boat. <laughs> you know, he said, no, I'll give you, he said, he said, you know, you give a Gentile a boat, he sails around the world. He said, I haven't seen one Jewish boat leave the harbor. He says, to, to, a, to a Gentile, it's a mode of transportation. To a Jew, it's a dormitory. Mine sleeps six. Mine sleeps that. You know, you know, the guy's a genius. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Here's what. Here's a question from a fan, George White. As a member of Blue Mink, did Roger see Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge singing "Melting Pot"? No, his, but I heard they did it. I they, heard they did it. Taking yeah. the piss out of it, as your people. Oh, like of to course say. they would. Of course yes. they would. Yes. 
Yes, yeah, yes, well, yes. a lot of people have taken the piss out of that song. Henry, tell Gilbert your joke that you told me about how to, how small your town was. Oh. Well, Henry how, writes the occasional <laughs> joke, Gil. I, I write the occasional joke. And, and you know, I, I wanted to get this to Dangerfield. I never did. I said, you know, so you're playing Babylon, Long Island. I said, Babylon's a small town. How small was it? Thank you. Yeah. Babylon is so small, the local postal worker had to shoot himself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. What do you think, Gil? <laughs> Excellent. That's small. See, I actually wrote a joke for you, Gil, because I did. I wrote a joke. I wasn't going to do it, but I don't care anymore because, you know, this is going where it's going. So I wrote this, right. I wrote this joke. I thought, you know, you remember Woody Allen in Bananas when he goes to see the revolutionary and he brings him a, a little cake with the, with the red and yellow, yes. the red and white string, which I thought, you know, you always bring a gift. So I thought I'm going to go on one of my favorite comedians ever, which is really, I mean that. And, and so I'm going to be on his podcast. I thought, but see if I bring him a joke. So I wrote this joke. And there's a better punchline than the punchline now, because I said, what do Muslims and Jews, it's timely, have in common? What? They both love the prophet. <laughs> what do you think, Gil? <laughs> <laughs> so... So, so I'm telling. I that's I'm, low. I'm, that's low. It is low. So I'm, but it gets better. So I'm talking to this guy you mentioned, Peter Noon. So I'm talking to his guitar player who lives on Long Island, Vance Brescia. And I think I'm going to be funny. I try out the jokes. I ask him. I said, Vance, what do Muslims and Jews have in common? And without batting an eye, he says, genital mutilation. <laughs> dunking, dunking on my joke. I mean, that's wow. it. So, so there wow. you have it. <laughs> It's, wow. Gil, it's yours if you want it. <laughs> Gil, open with it. Yeah. Gil, that, that Please. That profit joke is like, is like the kind of joke you would tweet. <laughs> yes. That, yeah. That's excellent. It's your joke. You wrote it. It's yours. I don't care. It's, it's my gift. <laughs> here's, another, here's a question from Roger from a listener, Morty Weinberg. He said, Billy West, frequent guest of this show, uh, he wrote that he never understood the lyrics of the Hollies, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress. Uh, he there's, there's something about the singer was German. His English, his English wasn't that good. I don't know this. Wait till I tell Alan that. Well, actually, it was a slapback that the engineer put on there. But uh, the lyric was a wild lyric anyway. We were drunk. We went out and had a, <laughs> you a, had a very lush, very lush lunch. Drank a bottle of wine, a couple of brandies each. Went back and we smoked a little doobie. I have to tell you, we did. That's what we did in those days. And then we sat down to write a song. And, of course, this crazy song came out about Prohibition. And uh, I do sing that song quite often in a set. And people say, oh, we heard the lyrics for the first time, you know. So uh, there, yes. That's the explanation. And, and yeah. Roger, I'm not going to let you run for me any longer. Uh, we have to sing Rainy Day Feeling again. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. All right, Roger, why don't you start us off, and then Gilbert will come in on the off sections. Is Gilbert going to do to this song what he did to Shannon? What do you think? <laughs> uh, maybe worse. I could, lose, I could lose a copyright here. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> here, come in. Which part do you want to sing, Gilbert? You better, st you better start no. off. Roger. You'll sing up until uh, before the clouds appeared. And, okay. And I'll do the rain. 
Here comes that rainy day feeling again And soon my tears will be falling like rain It always used to be a Monday Leftover memories of Sundays Always spent with you Before the clouds appeared And took away my sunshine Go ahead, Gil. Here comes that rainy day feeling again And I'll be dreaming of your baby in vain Wait a minute. Your face is always on my mind, girl I hoping soon you're gonna find your way back to me Cause if you say you'll stay The rainy days will go away yeah, 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 yeah. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, yeah. because he does Roger's song perfectly, and he does mine the way you heard it. <laughs> That's a low bar for perfect, Henry. <laughs> That's how I remember it. Bars in there. Raj, Raj give him, give him the, sing Long Cool Woman with the words, because I, when I heard it the first time, I thought they were great. I didn't know what they were either. And you did it at the Bluebird, and I thought, that's a great lyric, and I never heard it. I thought it was very clever. Lord, okay, well, wait a minute. Saturday night, I was downtown Working for the FBI Sitting in a nest of bad men Whiskey bottle piling high Well, a bootleg and booze are on the west side Full of people who were doing wrong Just about to call up the DA man I heard somebody singing this song A pair of 45s made me open my eyes And my temperature started to rise She was a long, cool woman in a black dress Five, nine, beautiful, tall just one look, I was a bad mess. That long, cool woman had it all. <laughs> Do you want to hear the rest of it? Yes, Max. <laughs> oh, Ellis, I saw her heading up to the table. Just a tall, walking, big black cat. Charlie said to me, I hope you're able, boy. I'm telling you, she knows where it's at. Well, and suddenly we heard the sirens Everybody started to run Jumping over walls and tables I heard somebody shooting a gun Well, the DA was pumping my left hand And she was holding on to my right I told her, don't be scared, you're gonna be spared. I have to be forgiven if I wanna spend my living with a long, cool woman in a black dress. Five, nine, beautiful, tall. Just one look, I was a bad mess. The Lordy, Lordy, long, cool woman, cool woman, cool woman had it all. Had it all. There you go. Fantastic. Awesome. Henry, you're right. I think that's the first time I understood the lyrics. They're great. The lyrics great. You know, I, it, 
Henry, talk about something from the one man show, which is how your uh, how a person's life changes when they suddenly have a monster hit, and yours changed dramatically. Suddenly, you're on Billboard. Suddenly, nobody will let you pay for a meal. Yeah, well, ah. it was you know I, I said in the show that you know I had this you know big hit record, and my life changed, but I didn't. I, you know, the money from the record never really appeared. But what I lacked in money, I made up for in food. I mean, people everywhere, you know, everywhere I went, people dove for the check, you know. It was, it was unbelievable. And, and so I thought if I had written my autobiography in 1976, I would have called it Mein Kampf's. <laughs> Gilbert, this is a man after your own heart. Yes. <laughs> Henry, pl Henry, play us something from the show. Not, not the last song we talked about, but, but, because uh, we'll save that one. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I don't know from the show. Okay. Yeah, we'll do a little. Have a little fun. This is a little autobiographical uh, thing. Everybody's telling me I'm guilty of a felony I took somebody's melody and put it in my song I admit I'm lazy and my memory might be hazy I'd never be so crazy cause I still know right from wrong Been high enough to see over the mountain Been high enough to fly above the rain Been down so low, stole pennies from the front and Been high enough to toss them back again Every day my honey says my jokes are not so funny I better earn some money if I want to get her love Though I know what I'm missing I'm a man on a mission Got a strong inner vision And I thank the stars above Been high enough to see over the mountain Been high enough to fly above the rain Been down so low, stole pennies from the fountain Been high enough to toss them back again I believe it's down to fate Whatever's meant to be what I am and what I ain't is good enough for me. Yeah. Been high enough to see over the mountain, been high enough to fly above the rain, been down so low, stole pennies from the fountain, been high enough to toss them back again, been high enough to feel I really made it. Thank you. Thank you. You still don't have it. Hot stuff, man. <laughs> 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 All right. All right. How do you guys write when you write together? How, what's the process? He beats me up. <laughs> you know, no. We, we, what do we do, Roger? 
We usually get together with, no, with an empty canvas, and he'll start picking. He's a great picker, Henry. And out of that picking, we'll start a melodic line or something, and then a, a, and a hook line, uh, you know, um, uh, word-wise. And there's no set formula, is there, Henry? No, but Roger is, is in it. And this is not, you know, like, a, you know, one of these uh, we love each other kind of things we do. But Roger is unusual in that so many writers in Nashville that I came across. Now, they're great, great writers, but a lot of guys are great at lyrics or they're great at music. Roger is one of those people that doesn't really need another writer. I think he more likes company at lunch. He's, he writes incredible lyrics, and he comes up with great melodies. I mean, we're sitting there, you know, and, and he comes in whistling, you know... Uh, To put you back together Somebody's gone and you've fallen apart If you want, you got me Nothing's gonna stop me Fixing your broken heart You know, like this kind of stuff, it's like... Nice. Yeah, it's fabulous stuff. I mean, I think this was your melody, Roger. Do you have to wear your beauty all over town? Can't you keep a little Well, I, do I get 75% of the publishing on that? You guys sit around and Henry picks until, you've, you, you, until you find a melody that you think is workable? No, well, he, he comes in. Not always. Sometimes I'm just strumming away on the ukulele. It's just, um, it's a little bit of magic. Songwriting is magic. It really is. If, if, mm -hmm. if Just suddenly come together on something, you go, ooh. That's kind of nice. Play that again, you know, and and uh, you, you end up with a great song. Well, we or got. Anyway. I got a call from Alan Pepper. What was it a couple of years ago, Raj? And he called me up. He used to own the Bottom Line with Stanley Snedowski. They owned the Bottom Line, which is down, you know, in, in the village. It was one of the great night music nightclubs in in the country, actually in the world. And so he called me up, and he he's living with his wife in the actors' home in New Jersey. And they wanted a theme song for the actor's home. So I called Raj, you know, because I thought, you know, it would, he would be, you know, we'd be perfect together to do this. And we wrote a song. And if you call the actor's home today, um, it's on. When you put you on hold, it's on. And people actually call, uh, Alan tells me, and they tell the, when they're going to put the call through, they say, no, wait a minute, put me on hold. I want to hear the rest of the song. So it's, it's a wonderful oh, song. And, and, and it'll be on the actor's home all the time. You know, it's got a little thing. What's it go? Uh, 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 tired bones, come on home. Say goodbye to being alone. Walk right in and join the family. And it goes, bet you got a story about your days of love and glory that you'd like to tell a friend. If you've been missing someone who will listen, well, you've made it to the rainbow's end. Anyway, it's like that. It's a really sweet song. I love it. And, you know, it's that. And Joe Brown, who's our friend from England, who's one of the great ukulele players on the planet. Sorry, Raj. But Joe is genius level. 
and and he does he did the uh, he closed the concert for George doing the yes the greatest version that will ever be done of I'll see you in my dreams heart heartrending yeah and that's Joe and you know I had was lucky to tour with him for a year and a half in England it was fantastic and uh, all, all hail Joe Brown all he's, hail he's, Joe he's, Brown he's and, great Joe <laughs> he's a great. Uh, Raj, what did you mean when you said the the wrong lyric can ruin a melody and vice versa? What did you, you say uh, that in an interview? If you if you're a singer and you write, you tend to choose words and and vowel sounds etc. that really work, uh, really work with the song, the melody. Mm-hmm. And people will sit down sometimes to write a song, not realize that. The lyric isn't that great to sing. It just doesn't roll off the, it doesn't make the singer sound good. I see. So I always try, and I know Henry and I have both got this in mind. When you write a song, you want to make the singer sound good. You open your throat up on the high notes with the right vowel sounds. Perfect. And uh, <laughs> it's just, um, you try to make the singer sound good. And that's, I think that's a secret to songwriting that, is passing by a lot of songwriters now. It doesn't seem to be as important. Well, Roger's a master of that. Really is. He comes up, you know, I'll, I have been, you know, we sit around this round table in the back of my house in Nashville, and I'll say something sometimes, and he'll go, oh, mate, you've gotten it all over me. Yeah, he's just, you know, I mean, he's disgusted, you know, like, it's not enough to just ignore it, you know, he has to, he wipes the throw up off his shirt. It's like it's, it's a brutal thing, songwriting. It's kind of like UFC fighting in a way. <laughs> I, I, I want to direct pretty. people, Henry, to your uh, your album, uh, the one I was t- the one I'm hearing things, which is just a terrific record. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah. I go back. You know, I told Henry on the phone that I bought "Plug Me Into Something" on vinyl at Corvettes on Long Island. There's a there's a reference, huh, Gilbert? Oh, EJ yes. Corvettes. Wow! Uh, in in 1976, uh, or 70, 70. When did when did Plug Me Into Something come out? 77? 75. 75. 75. Uh, and that, but discovering your recent music, uh, I'm hearing things, which has a song that you and Roger wrote on it. Uh, terrific record, and Thank a lot you. of those songs show up in your uh, in your one man show. Here's a, a listener, Mark Edwards Edelstein says Henry did in fact have a second hit in what we program directors used to call a mid-chart classic called Springtime Mama. Oh, yeah. That was a big record for me. Things that are rumbling around. hear some of that? It was, uh, well, <laughs> I'll do it the original key, darn it. All right. Springtime Mama, be my lady, let me know that. I love it. <laughs> I also like the moment, the, uh, the the clip package that opens One Hit Wanderer, we see Wolfman Jack giving you your gold record. Yeah, the Wolfman. He's my, he was, my brother Henry. The, he, was a, he was a great guy, but he used to uh, imbibe, and I did a bunch of shows that, you know, that he emceed, and he would come up on stage and, and sit on a chair while I was in the middle of a show. He'd pull up a chair, and he'd get another chair, and he'd play 
with drumsticks on the other chair in front of him. Um, he wasn't a groover, let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, to him, laying in the cut, I think, was referring to a Peter Luger's steak. But no- nothing to do with the groove. It was not happening. Uh, we've talked a lot about comedians. And Gilbert, here's something you didn't know about Roger. He uh, he wrote a song that was, re- that was uh, recorded by Jerry Lewis's son, by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. That's right, yeah. Which Green one? Grass. It was I, called Green Grass, and uh, I wrote it in my sleep one night, 1964. You wrote it in your sleep? Man makes money in his sleep. And it came to me. <laughs> it came to me in my sleep. And I woke I, up, and the song stayed on my mind because I still had a pretty virginal, uh, is that the right word? Virginal mind, anyway, when it came down to songs. I only had like 100 under the belt, so... So um, that song came to me, and the next day I got up and I sat down and I wrote the whole song out, and it came to me in my sleep. That's so funny because you hear that from so many songwriters that they'll get a song in their dreams. McCartney, oh, yeah. with, McCartney yeah, with yesterday, uh, right? McCartney, that's right. He said he yeah. dreamed yesterday. Scrambled eggs. Yeah, so scrambled yeah. eggs, yeah. Yeah. By, by the way, uh, go, go ahead, Kim. Can you play that Gary Lewis and the Playboys song? Uh, boy. Green grass round my window. Young leaves that the winds blow. Cause it's springtime, April sunshine. And we're glad, my little love and I. Now that summertime is Do you know who um who was the guy now who the guy who arranged that actually arranged the record was um oh Mad Dogs and Englishman who am I thinking Joe of? Joe Cocker? No. Oh, the piano. Uh, oh, uh, no Leon Coward. Russell. Leon Russell. Oh, <laughs> Leon Russell. Thank Leon. you. Henry. There you go. There you go. I'm good for something. He was the arranger of that record. I mean. When you think of that, it's a very lightweight record for Leon Russell to be involved with. But I guess he was arranging in New York in those days. That's oh, a wonderful yeah, that, that was, uh, the a great melody. Gary oh, Lewis wow. had some great songwriters working with him. He sure Al, did. Al Cooper Looting wrote him. This Diamond Looting Ring. Roger. Yeah. This Diamond Ring, yeah. Al Cooper, that. yeah. We were lucky to be following that record, so we, oh. we had a pretty big hit, you know, a top ten hit with Gary Lewis. So I never sang that song because it's too complicated. You sang it perfectly. Thank you very much. You did. Henry, it's a great call, Ke- Kevin Palmer says Sean and I were on the same bill with the Grateful Dead a few times. Yeah, we play. I was. I left the group early, like I said. You know, after Woodstock, a two, three, maybe three months, four months later, whatever it was. But I did play with him at the Fillmore East, and I think that I went home at around eight in the morning. <laughs> they they would they would they did two shows and you remember those those uh, the Rorschach test they called the Joshua lights it was looked like they threw ink on the screen it was one of the first you know backdrops it was a screen behind the stage and there were these big ink blots that would look you know it was called the Joshua lights and it was I think it was designed for the people that were particularly ready for the Grateful Dead 
and um, it was a they were they were great. I mean, they were lovely guys. I rode to the well, that's a whole other story about getting to the Woodstock <laughs> stage. But uh, I was in, in short, I was drunk with Jimi Hendrix beyond belief in the morning, and then I rode to the stage in a car with Jerry Garcia. So. The rest of the it's, afternoon was a... It's all in the one-man show. Yeah. And the rest of the afternoon is, as I said, a washing machine of images. <laughs> I don't know what happened. It sounds like spirits have, have uh, fair to say, occasionally played a role in songwriting. Well, you know, my mom, my mom was a musician <laughs> and my dad was a pharmacist. This is a match made in heaven to produce a rock and roll. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how have you guys, have you guys continued to, to try to collaborate under lockdown? I mean, uh, what, what's that process been? Haven't done it under lockdown with Roger because he refuses to write with me over the television like this, whatever we're doing here. No. Over, no. over Zoom. So you're yeah. waiting to get together till. I want to smell his sweat when I write. <laughs> he he just I'll likes swear. the way I mix drinks. That's all there is to it, you know. He makes me the great Jack and Coke. <laughs> I think I thought of the name of that songwriter from the English, uh, the uh, the singer rather, uh, Roger from the English congregation that we were trying to think about. Uh, we were trying to think of on the phone. Was it Brian Keith? Yes, it was actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, do. he brought some magic to that record. I love that song. Screaming high voice, you know. I told yeah. you, Frank knows everything. I've never heard a guy like this. He knows every fact. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, you ask him how to make helium out of out of out of a cardboard <laughs> box, and he knows how to do it. It's incredible. <laughs> I love that song, "Softly Whispering." I love you. Oh man, oh, thank I you, like man. your version of you're in, you're in uh, David and Jonathan's version of it, and I like the English congregation's version of it. Great song. Tell Paul us about Williams, uh, not Paul Williams. Paul, um, what was his name now? He did a great version of it. Paul, oh, uh, I know. Paul Young. You mean, uh, Paul Young. Paul Young did a lovely version of it much later, and he got in the charts with it. But I like that song. I Terrific song. I will urge our listeners to find it. Tell us about two guys that we lost recently, um, Henry. A little bit about Tommy West, one of the people oh, in your you. in your, your one man show that you say took a chance on you at an important time. Well, you know, I was banging around New York trying to get somewhere, and and, and I signed with Cashman and West, and they were the hottest guys going. They had Jim Croce, uh, it was exploding. I mean, he was he had you don't mess around with Jim and Leroy Brown, and you know, I got a name. I got a name was actually after I think he oh oh you know, okay or at the same time as the crash but uh, you know uh, time in a bottle was an album cut on the second album nobody knew that song till afterwards they realized how wonderful it was and uh, his son AJ is a, you know I'm like kind of like his big brother for the last thirty years or something but a wonderful guy well Tommy West met Jim Croce and and I think it was at Villanova in Philadelphia and they went to school together and they were in groups together and. Uh, I think what they had, I can't remember the name of the of the group they were in, some, some doo-wop group they had. And then uh, they ended up, Cashman and West ended up producing Jim Croce, and, and nobody wanted the record. But Terry Cashman and Gene Pastilli from Cashman, Pastilli, and West, um, they, uh, Terry and Gene Pastilli had written Sunday Will Never Be the Same, which was a mm -hmm. big hit for Spanky and our gang. And so they, they as a, I think as a favor... Steve Barry, the great producer of A Million Hits on ABC Dunhill, uh, took the Jim Croce record and they put out the first single and it blew up everywhere. You know, it's because nobody knows what they're listening to in this business, you know. 
I remember American City Suite. Wasn't that the one? Unbelievable Ca- record. Cashman and West? And before that, they they called themselves with Pistilli. Before it was Cashman's Pistilli and West, they called themselves the Buchanan Brothers. And they had a big hit called Medicine Man, which is really a great record. And so I made records with Cashman and West, about four albums. And Tommy was a very musical guy. And here's something funny, Roger. You wrote I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, and Tommy West sang on it in the group on the jingle. So wow. somehow that song, I was meant to have something to do with that song. Gilbert, oh, do you well, want to do a version of that? that because <laughs> I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing would be Gilbert, great. is that in your repertoire? <laughs> Can we hear some of I'd Like to Teach the World? Oh, you're yeah. torturing the guy. Go on, Rog. Sure, sure. I'd like to buy the world a home And furnish it with love Grow apple trees and honeybees In snow-white turtle doves I'd like to see the world for once All standing hand in hand Hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. It's a real thing. Coke is. In the back of your mind, Coca Cola. Sorry, I had to get that in there somewhere. <laughs> Raj, Raj, Roger, and I believe in you that that Don Williams had a hit. You had to change a line, and they'll love that. What was the line? You remember the line you had to change? I just sometimes I don't give a damn, and they they Don wouldn't sing damn. No, there was a Washington Texan. Sometimes I wonder who I am is what he put in there. No, but there wow. was another line. There was yeah, a, there was another line. Yeah, it was about... Uh, it, it had oh. a, a, a perhaps a uh, chemical reference. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. This is a that great the one. The rising cost of getting high. Right. And it was, he, they put in the he rising... Singing that. He sang the rising cost of getting by. You see? And I don't normally <laughs> let people change my lyrics, but it was Don Williams and it was going to go to number one, so I let it go. It did go to number one. <laughs> cheap, cheap, it, I was. T- tell us. A- I don't know why, but because I, I like this song, Time in a Bottle. Henry, can you perform any of Time in a Bottle? I don't know that song. But, oh. I, but, but if you invite AJ, his son, on here, he will do it and you will think it's his dad. There you go, Gil. (laughs) AJ is a dear, dear, and a great, he's one of the best keyboard players anywhere, any country. He's really, and and he's really fought not to be, when I met him, he he had these songs like Everything Tastes Like Chicken, about cannibals eating a guy in the jungle. And I said, I I heard him and I thought, oh my God, it's Jim Croce again. This guy's going to be huge. But AJ stuck to his guns and made his own career and his, did his own style of music and never tried to do that, which is very respectable. And now that he's fairly well-known, he goes out and he does some of his dad's tunes. And one of the more, you know, if you want to really hear it and get a tear from okay. it, you need to hear A.J. sing. Thanks for the, thanks for the booking idea. <laughs> no, A.J. is the Working at the Car Wash Blues. 
One of my favorite. I, uh, thoroughly movies. depressing, something mind messing. I played. The, I played. Mind gu- messing. Yeah, I played the guitar on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And R- Roger, fun. Roger. Uh, uh, since Henry remembered Tommy West, tell us uh, just one uh, thing about your late, dearly departed friend, John Prine. Mine too. <laughs> oh, and yours too. Yeah. Was, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. We were neighbors, all of us. Um, what can you say about John? He was just a wonderful creature as well as being a great songwriter and uh, a very special vocalist. He was just such a kind person, such a nice person. And uh, God, we miss him, something terrible. We went up uh, uh, about just a little over a week ago, we went up to Arkansas where we fished twice a year on uh, for the last 40 odd years on a, a river called the White River. And uh, we went up there and we took his ashes up there. And me and um, a couple of great guys, we, we threw some ashes on the river anyway and uh, and drank a handsome Johnny, which was John's favorite drink, Schmernoff and Diet Ginger Ale. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> you, you don't only drink one of those unless you're John Pine, then you drink them all night. Anyway, uh, so that was lovely. Yeah, my friend John, what can I say? He was just a... He's a wonderful person. What, a, he, what an uh, artist. Yeah, and uh, it was great to go to a John Prine show and hear 2,000 people singing along with all the words. I'm sure. That's the kind of fans he had, you know. Uh, yeah, we miss John. Forgive me, Henry. I didn't know you were close to, to, to yeah, John as well. I bought my house because Roger had a house, and it was a, it was a, a Super Bowl day. And I was over there with Roger and John, and John had something that he had brought back from Chicago, and we were all completely uh, gone. So I, wa- I, and, and I walked around the corner and bought a house. <laughs> it's a true story. Didn't I? That's it. I walked around. When I came back. I said, I just bought a house. And uh, yeah, we were neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Know, a great, a great artist and a great legacy. Unbelievable. And what a guy! I had Thanksgiving and Christmas at his house for years. And he was an amazing guy because as successful as he was, he he still, I think, thought of himself as a mailman who wrote songs. You know, he was so humble, right, Rog? I mean, he, you would never yeah, he know. Was. You would Always never know humble. you were the big shot. He was very generous and he was funny. He had a he had, he was obviously clever and uh but really soulful. I mean the very man, soulful, yeah. He wrote he, go ahead. He was a blue-collar poet. Yeah. He wrote for the, the average man in the street, you know, who had a regular job and trying to get along with his wife and raising kids in school. That's He wrote those kind of songs, John. I he, qu- yeah, I quote him all the time with yeah. one of these lines. And I love a million John Prine's lines, of his lines, and there's a lot of them that people go over and over, but there was one. Walking down the street like Lucky LaRue, got my hand in my pocket thinking about thinking you. you. I ain't hurting nobody. I nobody. ain't hurting no one. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's incredible. Henry, there was, a, there was a, go ahead, go ahead, Roger, I'm sorry. I, I was going to tell you a very quick story about John. This is his kind of humor. We got together one night at six o'clock, which was a bad time for us to write. We wrote at one o'clock in the morning. But somebody decided we should get again. And we sat down, we looked at each other for an hour trying to come up with an idea and couldn't. And John said, are you hungry? I said, yeah. He said, let's go and get a steak. So we went to Ruth Chris Steakhouse and we ordered our food and a nice bottle of wine and we were drinking some wine and he was eating a bite of steak and he looked at me and he said, I love songwriting. 
He's <laughs> 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 just a beautiful line at the time. I've never forgotten it. That's great. Hen- Henry, did you want to share your poem with Gilbert? Oh, it was, uh, well, it, when Roger, see, I was in England with my wife, and uh, and, and Roger, one of, while we were there, Roger was being inducted into uh, what is called the Songwriters of Distinction, mm-hmm. which is, um, um, you know, one of the most, it's like, it's like a Songwriter Hall of Fame here. And so, you know, Joe Brown, who was his friend, how many years were you friends with Joe Brown? A hundred and... They had the, when they both turned seventy five. They had their hundred and fiftieth birthday party, mm-hmm. which is fun. <laughs> you know, they had these shirts. And anyway, so Joe never missed a gig in his life, and he was going to make a speech about Roger. And I had one. I had no idea what I was going to. I thought I was going to a dinner party that you needed to wear a tuxedo to get into the restaurant. I had no idea what we were doing, and so they we got dropped off. And we walk into some posh place in what part of London it was, a very posh part of London. Savoy. Savoy. And I walk in, and as we walk in, they blow the trumpets and go, Mr. and Mr. Hen- Mr. and Mrs. Henry Gross. And the guy says, do us proud, sir. And because Joe got, <laughs> Joe got sick, he got the flu. And he says to me, I, I skipped this, I, Joe got sick for the first time in his life an hour before we were supposed to leave. He couldn't get out of bed. And he says to me, Henry, you'll say a few words about Roger, won't you? And I said, sure, why not? You know, I mean, I, my pal, you know, I'll say something about it. So I got in this room and I get in there and, this, I mean, who, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber is there and Justin Hayward. I mean, a half of rock and roll England is there and they're honoring my friend. And uh, I, had not, I hadn't prepared anything. But I remember that Joe Brown and Roger, both of them, and in fact, every English guy I ever met does these little limericks. So I had learned one, I think, in public school. <laughs> and and I and I thought, well, the English will like this, so I said, uh, "Twas the night before the king's castration; it was his last ball. All the counts, recounts, and discounts were gathered round the table, talking camel shit. For in those days, bullshit had not yet been invented." Up rode Sir Galahad. Said, "Where is the queen?" Why, she's playing with the prick of the Prince of Peoria. What said the king? She should be dangling the dick of Duke of Denmark. Fuck everyone, said the king, and millions of babies were born. For in those days, the king's word was the law. <laughs> and, and I said this to and I, and that was where our friendship ended. <laughs> he says this to like a hundred huge hit songwriters with all their wives and everything. I didn't know what else to say. Oh, my Lord. Gilbert, you'd have done it. Gilbert would have done it. Gilbert would have done it. <laughs> You got oh, one yeah, yeah. one thing with you guys that keeps coming through is is uh, is gratitude, Roger. I heard you in an interview and somebody said, you know, who is Roger Cook, and you said one lucky son of a bitch. Well, so, it's true, isn't it? And I'm tall and I'm fairly good looking. Yes, <laughs> and um, <laughs> fair to say. <laughs> I mean, what do you want? I'm very happy with life. Yeah, I'm a very lucky man. Lucky man. We're all lucky people here, including Jim Delacroce, who's watching. And Jim Delacroce is here. He's not speaking, but we owe this whole episode to him. Yes, as well as the Michelle Phillips show and the and the John Sebastian show. I owe tons uh, to him. And uh, Henry, why don't you? uh, Speaking of luck and Hmm. gratitude, you have the perfect song to take us out. Well, I even I even think Roger doesn't hate this one of mine. 
The waitress asks me if I'm famous I say no, but I'm hungry She says the eggs are cold, the toast is burnt The bacon's mostly fat And I say, lucky me, I like it like that Nowhere to stay, I ring the doorbell The landlord looks me up and down and says The walls are thin, the rooms are cramped There's no place to hang your hat And I say, lucky me, I like it like that Cause every day I play it straight Never tempt the hand of fate In a world of give and take I take what's given I find a gypsy fortune teller In a rundown shack across the tracks She says, money isn't in the cards Hard work will break your back And I say, lucky me, I like it like that Cause every day I play it straight Never tempt the hand of fate In a world of give and take, I take what's given. Standing at the gates of heaven, St. Peter smiles at me and says, The food is great, the hotel's grand, your bags have been unpacked, and I say, Lucky me, I like it like that Lucky me, I like it like that Fantastic. That's a great song, Henry. What a Love great it. song. Thanks, Raj. Thank you, everybody. I can't believe you're Jewish. I just can't believe it. <laughs> Why? I, I, I can't believe you're not Jewish and wrote great songs. What are the odds? <laughs> I mean, you're the only guy that ever wrote a hit. I can't believe it. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> we, have, we have to thank you guys. Gilbert, did you have a good time? Gil, did you have fun with these guys? Oh, oh my God, yes. Roger Henry, we have fun with you, Gilbert. You, you guys oh, are just thank you. terrific, terrific artists. Uh, and Jim Delacroce, nothing happens without Jim. So, nope. thanks again, pal. Any anything you guys want to plug or promote or mention or just Henry, a, your website? Yeah, HenryGross.com. And, and and I'm on. And for those of you that don't want to buy, I mean CDs, you can't buy anything anymore anyway. Where would you play it? But if you are nuts enough to buy one, I've got a house full. Trust me. And uh, and if you want to hear it, it's on YouTube. Just look up the songs on my website, and it's on Spotify. It's on Apple. It's my stuff's all my records. They're all available everywhere. And uh, I have songs you'll love, like the night you picked up the check, and uh, let's <laughs> let's open a bottle and wine. And some very nice, heartfelt ones, too. You know, I, I have all, I have, uh, where else are you going to hear Geezers of Nazareth? Unless you come that. to my album. So, you know, you're not going to find it. Let's face it, you can't get it anymore. Corvettes is closed.
So Corvettes is gone. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Raj? Anything you want to promote or mention before we get out of here? No, just have a good life, everyone. <laughs> have a wonderful fucking life. <laughs> Thank, thank you guys both for a, a lifetime of music. Well, thank you, buddy. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be on this show. That's great. It was okay, great. Gil. Gil, I love you. And I, Frank, you're unbelievable. And oh, Ro Raj, well, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, well, never mind. Save it for later. <laughs> and I Ken, hope you guys are Henry... together soon so you can smell him. <laughs> and, and Henry, you were saying you were a fan of mine. I was very flattered. No, I am. I, I, but I realize I told Frank, I, I think I know, you know, I mean, I don't know a lot about, but I mean, your line about, I got to say, what you did to the guy, George Takai. It is oh Takei Takei yes it, 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 that, oh lord I saw that, it, that <laughs> and the and, and and I gotta say Gil my lord the the line about he imagine being the black sheep of the Hitler family I mean this is this is this is classic this is too good I mean I I wish we could stay on and you could do a half an hour because that really would be the treat you know it's oh, unbelievable you, man another day another and, day and, gentlemen and Frank tortured me. Because he said you were doing Carolines and, and that, you know, that if I, and I'm not in New York. And he said, if I was there, we would have gone down to see you. And, oh, man, that'll happen. Uh, it'll happen. It'll oh, happen. thank you. You guys are entertaining well, as hell. Go on, we Roger. Thank uh, I, we thank you. And this thank has you. been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And... We've been uh, talking to two guys. If it has anything to do with songs or songwriting, uh, they've done it. And they continue doing it. Roger Cook and Henry Gross. That's them. And let's thank Johnny Lucas and John McClain. Yeah, Johnny. And, and, and John Murray for also making this happen. It takes a village. We love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much, for most fans will love it. Mama, who's gonna rock? Who's gonna rock it tonight? Mama, who's gonna rock? Who's gonna rock?